passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As we approach God's Word, I want to start with a story um, that, that is a true story. It's from about 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, a British television channel decided to create a new TV special called The New Ten Commandments. And as a part of this show, they decided that they were going to poll approximately 65,000 British people and ask them which of the Ten Commandments were still relevant for moral living today. If you think that that's a very, very bold project, just wait until you hear the responses. In response to this poll question, people concluded that only two of the original Ten Commandments were still important today for moral living. You should not murder, and you should not steal. Conspicuously absent from this new and improved Ten Commandments is any mention of honoring your father and mother, of lying, of adultery, of coveting other things, but probably the biggest absence from them was any mention of God. God, the one who gave the first Ten Commandments, the one who decreed that these are the way that we should live, was absent from the new Ten Commandments. You might be going to wonder, well, why is that? I think the reason is because God, if there is a God, means that there is a higher authority for us than ourselves. And if there is a higher authority for us than just myself, that means that I have to possibly answer to someone someday. And if I have to answer to someone someday, that means that there is a good chance that I will feel guilt. We don't like guilt we don't like having guilty consciences. In fact, uh, many of us are familiar with a, uh, a feeling of guilt very similar to uh, this short video clip. We don't normally show video clips today, but I think that this is so appropriate for us. Go ahead and show that, Zach. Many of you are probably familiar with this. A car. A big, shiny, silver car. I'll drive all over Hollywood, show Flugelman a thing or two. What about you? New York, maybe Paris, mm. a lot of champagne, parties, be a big shot for a while. How about you, Ned? I'm going to start a foundation to help homeless children. That, that occurred to me to do that at one point, too. Oh, well, I, I meant that I would, start, I would do that first, and then I would get a big shiny car. Or Many of us are undoubtedly familiar with that feeling of guilt when we are next to someone else who is doing something better than we are, and so we try to justify our responses. We don't like having guilty consciences. And so the solution for us is relatively simple. If we can get rid of the source of our guilt then we can get rid of our guilt itself. One theology professor shares a way that this is oftentimes working its way out today. He tells the story of a student who came to him feeling extremely guilty for some of the things that they had done with their fiancé. 
She said that she felt guilty about the things that she had done, and she approached her pastor, and her pastor said, the reason why you feel guilty is because you live in a culture that tells you that those things are wrong. The way to get rid of your guilt is not to feel bad about it, but to recognize that it is simply a social construct. It's just something that you created because of the environment that you find yourself in. Of course, the words of the pastor were still pretty unhelpful for the girl as she felt extremely guilty. And so she approaches this professor, and this professor responded this way. In this case, she had broken the law of God. And she should rejoice that she felt guilty because pain... As uncomfortable as it is to us, is important for our health. In the physical realm, the feeling of pain signals that there is something wrong with the body. Spiritually speaking, the pain of guilt can signal to us that something is wrong with our souls. There is remedy for that, and it is the same one that the church has always offered, namely forgiveness. Real guilt requires real forgiveness. The two responses to this girl, that of the pastor and that of the professor, show us really two aspects of guilt. The pastor focused on the subjective aspect of guilt, or something that we actually feel. Guilt is subjective. It makes us feel bad. But of course, as we just heard, the answer to why that is the case from the pastor was inadequate. And that's where the professor comes in and says that oftentimes we feel guilty because we are guilty. This is objective guilt. We are guilty before God. And that's a tension that our culture doesn't really like. Our culture doesn't like hearing that guilt is more than just a feeling. Our culture doesn't like hearing that we actually have to stand before someone and be held accountable for what we do. But for much of human history, and for the people of Israel, this modern understanding of guilt as just a social construct of something that is purely subjective is absent. It is foreign. They would recognize that guilt is both subjective, that we feel guilty, and objective. It is something that we are as a status. And for the people of Israel, something needed to be done to address this guilt. And that is where we turn to our final sacrifice, the guilt offering. This was an offering that the people of Israel would offer to address their guilt before God, their objective guilt, as well as their feelings of guilt, their subjective guilt guilt. It was one of the most important sacrifices for the people of Israel. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Leviticus chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 14. And as we've been working our way through Leviticus, you may have noticed that Leviticus can be tough to read. It can oftentimes read more like instruction manual for a vacuum than it does for telling us the purpose of certain rituals why the people of Israel performed these things. But the good news is, as we turn to this passage, we see that it is quite different. There is very little in these verses about the ceremony or the details of the ceremony. The focus is instead on the reason for the sacrifice and the actions that must be accompanying that sacrifice. 
As we open our text to the guilt offering, we're going to see one thing. The guilt offering is a call for consistent repentance. The guilt offering is a call for consistent repentance. The message of the guilt offering is clear. It is not just enough for us to offer up sacrifices. Those sacrifices must be coupled with repentant hearts. And the way that we show those repentant hearts is with repentant actions, repentant deeds. To explore this, this text looks at really two different types of sin. First, it looks at vertical sin, or the sin that we see between us and directed toward God. And second, we see horizontal sin, or sin that is directed toward others. Again, if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along, picking up Leviticus chapter 5, starting in verse 14, as we see discussion on vertical sins. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith, and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth of it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven." As we see here, one of the reasons for offering up the guilt offering was because of our guilt before God. The sins that we had done that are directed toward God. And here in these verses, we see one of the ways that people would sin against God. And that would be taking or desecrating the things that have been dedicated to God. Last week, we looked at the sin offering. As we were looking at the sin offering, we saw that it was given to Israel as a way for Israel to address the stain of sin that sin had left upon them. It was the way that they could be able to enter into the presence of God once more, so they could worship God again. So the sin offering focuses on taking unholy things, taking you and taking me, and making them holy so they can be in the presence of God. This week, as we look at the guilt offering, a way of looking at it is the opposite. The guilt offering addresses the times when something that is holy is made unholy and how to make it so that it can enter into the presence of God again. It's the same issue or a similar issue, just looking at it from the opposite end of the spectrum. That's what our text is referring to when it talks about holy things here. It's things that have been consecrated to God. And this can refer to many different things. Let's look at three categories of holy things first category. These are things that are found in the temple or in the tabernacle. This can refer to the bread of the presence. It can refer to the candles that were found there, the many different utensils that were in the tabernacle. It can refer to the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, and many different things. And if you, as an Israelite, accidentally used one of these things in an inappropriate way, it was considered to be stealing from God doesn't matter if you meant to do it or not. You are responsible for your actions. Of course, it was pretty rare for people of Israel to make make a mistake when it came to the tabernacle because they weren't allowed in there very often. It would take a conscious decision on their part to uh, take one of these things and use it the wrong way. 
And that brings up a discussion uh, that we started last week that I want to just briefly touch on this morning, and that is on the difference between intentional and unintentional sins. If you look in this passage, and we mentioned this last week, uh, only, the only thing that's in view here, sacrifices for unintentional sins. In the Old Testament, there is no sacrifice offered for intentional sins, or the, the text in Numbers says, uh, sins done with a high hand. The only thing that could be done is on the Day of Atonement, God would offer mercy on that day. Until then, the people of Israel would be cut off from their people. But of course, if you look at this passage, you look at the concept of taking something that belongs to God for your own, most of the time, it is something that you are going to do intentionally. So what do these terms mean? Intentional sin and unintentional sin. Intentional sin is sin that is done with a high hand. It is something that is done directed at God as a conscious act of rebellion without a repentant heart afterward. Everything else falls into the phrase of unintentional sin. It's things that we might have done on purpose, but we respond with repentance after doing them. We didn't make a conscious decision to rebel against God in those moments. That is what is in view here, these unintentional sins. In 1971, the Holy Trinity Anglican Church in England uh, had a visitor from Germany. This visitor saw a Bible located there that was over 200 years old. As they saw the Bible and they saw how precious it was and how beautiful it was, this person instinctively and impulsively took the Bible and they returned home to Germany. For 42 years, they had possession of this Bible until finally God convicted them. And in 2013, they mailed the Bible back to England, apologizing for what they had done, returning the Bible to its rightful owners. That's what's in view here in this first category, something that belongs to God in the church that has been taken and used inappropriately. Second category of holy things. These are objects that have been dedicated to God. In ancient Israel, it was very common for the spoils of war to be dedicated to God. If you were to take one of these things for yourself, it would be desecrating or stealing the holy things that belonged to God. Another example of this is objects that the people of Israel would give to God and give to the tabernacle and to the temple, just simply out of gratitude. Several years ago, I was in Guatemala. While I was in Guatemala, I was uh, living in a, uh, for a short period of time just uh, in this village, helping a church uh, build a, a new church building. I was staying with a pastor there. At that time, my Spanish was relatively serviceable. And so when we would go to church, it would be uh, relatively easy for me to follow along with what was said. But one evening, we decided to go to a different village and attend a different church. And this church was a Pentecostal church. As a part of this denomination, they spoke in tongues for the, essentially the entire service. I had no idea what was being said the entire time. So I'm sitting there, my eyes are starting to glaze over during this service, and then I see some people get up at the beginning or at the front of the church, and they have bags in their hand. I begin to realize, okay, this is the universal sign for offering time. I understand this. 
And so as the ushers came forward to me, I was feeling generous, and so I pulled out all the money that I had on me. It was about 20 uh, American dollars. I put it in the offering bag, thought that that was that. I got a look of confusion and shock and, and uh, just almost uh, just a look of uh, someone was completely disturbed by what I had just done, but I didn't think much of it. A few minutes later, as the song was continuing, the person who had taken my money came back to me with a couple sheets of paper. I was confused because I didn't really expect to get a receipt for my giving in Guatemala. I didn't really think that that would be a tax-deductible expense while, living, or while spending some time in Guatemala. To make matters even worse... After a few more moments, the ushers stood up again and began to pass out the bags once more. I got really confused and and leaned over to the pastor because to me, having two offerings back to back in a church service is a pretty bold move. So I leaned over to him and said, what's going on here? And he said, or I said, why are there two offerings? And he said, well, there aren't. That first, this is the offering that first time was a raffle. I panicked because I soon realized that the money that I had just been given was not a receipt for my giving, but it was a bunch of raffle tickets. I understood that the look of shock and horror from the usher was because I had just put in 10 times more money into the raffle than every single other person there. Here was this greedy American trying to buy out the raffle of this poor Guatemalan church. And as the ushers approached me, I began to panic because I had no more money. I didn't know how I was going to respond when the usher stuck the offering bag in my face, expecting me to give even more to the church than I did for the raffle. Of course, I was out of money, and by the look of the usher as he just held that offering bag right in front of my face, waiting for me to give money in there, I did not make very many friends that night. Why do I tell that? Let's say I changed my mind. Let's say I decided it was a way for me to save face and I go up and grab the money out of the raffle and give it to the offering. Or let's say I take that money and I was thirsty and decided I wanted to buy a Coke afterward. If I would have done that, I would have, from the Old Testament perspective, taken something that belonged to God, that had been dedicated to God, And I would have been stealing from God. Doesn't matter if I would have changed my mind. Doesn't matter that I wanted to take it back. I would have been liable for sinning against the holy things. For sin against God himself. So that's the second concept or second type or category here of holy things. And the third one is simply food of sacrifices. As we've worked our way through Leviticus, we've seen that there, uh, for the majority of the sacrifices, only a portion of it is offered up on the altar. The rest of it is given to the priest for food. If someone were to take a part of the priest's portion, even if it was accidental, they would need to offer a guilt offering. So to atone for their guilt, there were two parts of the sacrifice. First, they would have to make restitution. They would have to pay for the object that they had taken and pay for it in full. Plus, they would have to offer an additional 20% as a way of showing their repentance. 
And second, they would offer the sacrifice itself. Only one type of animal was allowed, a bull without, or a ram without blemish, rather. And this was the way that they would handle both their vertical sins as well as their horizontal sins. So as you hear about that, you might begin to wonder, what are some modern-day equivalents to vertical sins? What are some modern-day equivalents to this idea of sinning against the holy things? On the most basic level, that, that story that I shared uh, of the Anglican church in the UK uh, is, is an example. Stealing something that belongs to God. But that's not the main focus today. I think the main focus is anything that robs God of what is rightfully his. Anytime that we neglect to give God what is rightfully his, whether that is our time or our finances or our talents, when we take and keep for ourselves what belongs to God, we are liable for sinning against God. Or it might be some time where you give something to the church and then unforeseen circumstances show up and you try to take back what you have given to the church. It could be any number of things, but the focus is on sinning against God himself. And when we sin against God, we are plagued with subjective guilt. We feel guilty, hopefully, and objective guilt. We are guilty before God. And the guilt offering was given for both. There's another type of guilt offering that's mentioned here, starting in verse 17. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he does not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. As you hear those verses, it might be a little confusing. So what is in view here? Well, what is in view is a focus on subjective guilt, on the feeling of guilt. Imagine that you have a nagging suspicion that you have wronged God, or you've done something wrong in God's eyes, but you're not really sure what you have done. You can't put your finger on it. You're just kept up at night, focusing on something. You're uncomfortable. In these verses, if you had a guilty conscience, for whatever reason, you were supposed to offer a guilt offering. It was the way that you could clear your conscience before God. Paul picks this up in Romans 14 when he talks about the conscience and its role in sin. Let's say you grew up in a tradition that says that dancing is wrong or playing cards is wrong, as some Christian traditions do. Now, to be clear, there's nothing in Scripture about that. There's nothing in Scripture that explicitly prohibits dancing or explicitly prohibits playing with cards. But because of your upbringing, let's say that you think that it is wrong. You think that it is a sin. If you have that mindset, if you view these things as sinful and you go ahead and do them anyway, you are guilty of sin. Not because of your actions, but because of of your conscience, and the fact that you have sinned against it. You thought that they were sinful, and you did it anyway. Paul says this in Romans fourteen twenty three. But whoever has doubts is condemned 
if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Leviticus 5.19 tells us something similar. If you think that you've sinned, even if you haven't, you are responsible to make an offering. To not make an offering in these times when you have a guilty conscience is an act of sin because our conscience is what makes us guilty before God. This can work its way out in many different ways. There's nothing wrong with watching television or movies. But if you have a guilty conscience about what you are watching or the amount of time that you are watching, in the Old Testament, you would need to offer a guilt offering for those times. It was a way to address a vertical sin between you and God. You had robbed God, or your conscience convicted you of sin. The way to remove your guilt, both objective and subjective, is with a guilt offering. Next, as we turn to Leviticus chapter 6, we see a discussion on horizontal sins. Pick up in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and has lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all these things that people do and sin thereby. So then it stops right there. So let's look at these categories that it describes here. Vertical sins, stealing from God. Horizontal sins, you could say, is an equivalent. It is stealing from others. And here we have two categories and a couple different examples of those categories. First category, deceit. The ways that we steal from others through deceit. In ancient times, there were no banks. There were no safety deposit boxes. And so if you're going on a journey, and you had some valuables that you wanted to keep safe back at home, you would entrust them to a neighbor. You would ask them to look after them for you. After you return, you would ask for your items back. But let's say as you approach your neighbor, they claim that they are lost. Or they claim that they gave them to someone else to watch. Or they claim that they were stolen, even though they still have them. This is what is in view here. It's an act of deceit used to rob your neighbor. The same with flat-out robbery. Imagine that you have been robbed by someone and they lie to your face about it. They were guilty of defrauding you through deceit. Whenever that person comes to their senses, realizes their guilt, feels guilty about it, they would offer a guilt offering for their actions. That's the first category, deceit. Second category, extortion. Extortion. For people who would extort others through lying, using their position of power, taking advantage of the poor, they were just as guilty of their actions before God. This is what it means when it says oppressing his neighbor. This is doing something that might be legally permissive, but is nevertheless still immoral. I have to be honest, America has perfected the art of deceit and the art of extortion. We practice deceit by blaming others or by uh, lying to others face to face. We practice extortion 
on our own levels, when we use our position of power to take advantage of someone, or when we take advantage of someone else's weakness in position of power, or the situation that they find themselves in, or if of their lack of knowledge of the community or of different areas. And God says in every single one of these examples, we are guilty of sin. We have sinned against our neighbors. And when we come to our senses, we are required to offer a guilt offering. Last few verses here of chapter 6 describe what this offering was like. I'm not going to jump into those because the process is the exact same as for the vertical sin. One would have to make restitution, paying 120% of what was owed. And only then were they allowed to offer a sacrifice. It was through these two actions, through restitution and through sacrifice, that people would address both their subjective and objective guilt. Now, if you notice, what's in view here is a financial focus. After all, it is uh, things that have been stolen from you. But I think that this gives us a broader ethic of the Old Testament. Anytime you would sin against your fellow humans, your neighbors, or your friends, or your countrymen, you would have to make restitution for what you had done. You would have to make things right. It doesn't matter if it was financial or not, and many times it wasn't. If you were to approach God, approach God for a time of worship, you must first make amends with your fellow humans. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your guilt. You see, God sees our guilt before him. And he sees our guilt before others as one and the same thing. He sees them as connected. That we can't repair our relationship with God without also repairing our relationship with those that we have wronged. It doesn't make any difference the sin, whether it's financial or not. Our guilt before God must be taken care of through repentance and sacrifice. That's the focus of the guilt offering in the Old Testament. As you read that, you might say, okay, I kind of follow that. But how does that apply to today's context? I think there are two primary application areas. First is this. Today, we look to Jesus as our guilt offering. Today, we look to Jesus as our guilt offering. Many of you are probably familiar with the prophecy about Christ that's found in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. It's a passage that was written 700 years before Jesus came to earth. It's five verses, uh, like in a song, five stanzas long. It's all about Christ's death for us and on our behalf. In these five verses, we see a a list or or, uh, we see a great deal of parallelism. The first is all about exaltation. Isaiah 52 verse 13 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The second stanza looks at rejection. Isaiah 53 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with his grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We'll come to the third here in a moment. Look at the fourth one. Again, it focuses on rejection. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a, she- uh, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so op- he opened not his mouth. And finally, exaltation. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall, bring his off- he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Why is it that Jesus is exalted? Notice what it says here in verse 10. Because it says that Jesus' life was offered as a guilt offering. Isaiah describes and interprets the life of this coming Messiah as a guilt offering offered for us. If you notice the parallelism here, you notice that first verse, it talks about uh, exaltation. The second, it talks about rejection. The third, the Fourth, it talks about rejection. The the final one, it talks about exaltation. The reason why there is no guilt offering anymore is because of the third stanza here. I just want to read all of this to you, talking about how Jesus is a guilt offering for us. It says this Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is our guilt offering because he took sin on his shoulders I love the way that the the words of the modern day hymn before the throne of God above describe this sacrifice. When it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you feel guilt for your sin, The message of the cross is it is taken care of. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's through the death of Christ that our guilt is taken away. The crushing condemnation of subjective guilt, of the guilt that we feel, is removed. The guilty status that we have before God is rectified because Christ is our guilt offer. That's the first application. Second one is this. At the same time that we recognize that Christ is our guilt offering, there's also an important principle for us in our worship. 
Repentance is a necessary part of our worship. Repentance is a necessary part of our worship. The word repentance is essentially a navigational term. It is used to literally refer to turning around, to going down a path, and to turning from that path and going the opposite direction. When Israel would offer up guilt offerings, they would also make restitution to others. It was a sign of their repentance, of turning around from the sin that they had committed. In the New Testament, a beautiful example of this is the life of Zacchaeus. Under Roman law, Zacchaeus was entitled to everything that he had done. And yet he extorted others. He took advantage of them as a tax collector. As a tax collector. And yet when Jesus visits his house, as he encounters Christ, he comes away from that and says, God, if I have done anything wrong to someone, I will, give, I will repay them back 400% of what I have taken. It was an expression of lavish repentance because of what Christ had done for him. He lived a life of repentance. And for us as Christians, our whole lives are to be lives of repentance. But the reality is, the sad reality of our church in America today is that this is so often missing. In his book, Maximum Faith, George Barna is a sociologist, and he lists four areas where the American church lacks spiritual depth. The number two area is repentance. We live in a context where oftentimes confession and repentance are not wedded together. C.S. Lewis says this, A Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent. The Puritan Thomas Watson says this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Both of these point to the centrality of repentance in the life of the Christian. The importance of repentance in our lives. You see, the reality is, as Christians, our lives are to be lives of repentance. They're to be lives lived out, recognizing that we will not truly understand the sweetness of Christ until we have repented. Until we understand the bitterness of our sin and turn our back on it. Friends, the guilt offering calls for consistent repentance. So take a moment and ask yourself, where is God nudging you to repent? What area of your life is the Spirit pricking your conscience? We don't respond with obedience as a way to earn our status before God because Christ is our guilt offering. In the same way, we live lives of worship. And that worship includes repentance. Let's just take a few moments. And just listen to way, the ways God might be directing you. Or he might be calling you to repent in certain areas and respond in obedience. Lord, we thank you for passages like Isaiah 53 that make it so clear the significance of what Christ has done for us. 
We thank you that he is our guilt offering. That he bears our guilt. That he takes away the crushing condemnation of our guilty consciences. Lord, help us to live lives of repentance. To live lives of worship that honor you in all that we do. God, we pray these things in your spirit, asking that you would enable us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.